You're listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. In this episode, we chat with Jeremy Holt. Jeremy is a non-binary author whose most recent works include Made in Korea, Virtually Yours, Before Houdini, and Skip to the End. Their latest comic series, Made in Korea, is about a Korean nine-year-old named Jesse, who's adopted and sent to live with a lovely couple in America. Equipped with an encyclopedic brain, but socially awkward, Jessie's journey through the complexities of race, gender, and identity hits a fork in the road when she discovers she's not entirely human, yet. The story is so cleverly crafted and completely gripping, we couldn't put it down. We thought we were going to talk to Jeremy about Made in Korea and maybe about being an identical triplet, and we did, but the conversation kept unfolding in unexpected and wonderful ways. What this episode is ultimately about is following your dreams and realizing your destiny. Yes, big, epic, inspiring stuff. We start with how Jeremy found their true creative calling as a comic writer while working a day job at Apple, how they eventually got picked up by their dream publisher years after almost quitting writing altogether, and how success really came after putting more of their own personal experience and trauma into their work. Jeremy absolutely blew us away, and this was one of our favorite interviews to date. My name is Jeremy Holt. I'm a comic book writer. I also happen to be a Korean adoptee, identical triplets, um, and I identify as non-binary, pronouns they, them. Okay, I'm not going to ask about being an identical triplet now. I'm going to, like, try and curb my curiosity. (laughs) Wait for later. (laughs) First, um... Can you tell us, like, how you became a writer? Because um, from your website, we saw that your first career was in sound design. To say I had a career in sound design is being very generous. Um, I I had a glorified internship for about a year at a post-production sound studio in Soho when I moved to New York in 2005 um, after graduating from college. But I never really did a whole lot of writing, to be honest. Uh, I never really thought of myself as a writer. I never had plans to pursue my, my creative career as a writer. It was really by accident. So I went through a film program at a school at an art school in Savannah, Georgia. And I did this internship for about a year and it really wasn't for me. And about at the year mark, I landed a job working at Apple when their fifth Avenue flagship location opened in 2006 and I started working at Apple and I thought that my career was actually in tech. I was like, oh my God, I understand all of this stuff. And I eventually got certified and became a genius and was a certified technician. And I did that for about five years at Apple. And I really thought that that was my career. And I just sort of given up on being a creative person. And then I'd say maybe like three or four years after that, I was working at a consulting firm in New York. And I realized that I needed to still be creative. I realized tech wasn't my career. It was a day job and that was really about it. So this was probably around 2008 when I was hanging out with my oldest brother who happened to be a comic book collector when we were growing up and he still has all of his comics. So we went to a coffee shop and he gave me a couple of comics to read and one in particular really caught my attention which is Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which is a kind of a reimagining of Batman as a much, much older man. And it just humanizes the character in a way I'd, I'd never seen done before. 
and I was enthralled and I, you know, was asking about this character in this book. And, you know, then I sort of, that's how I kind of fell into reading about creator on comics, which is outside of Marvel and DC. It's a lot of characters that are owned solely by the creative teams that create them. And so Vertigo, which is an imprint of DC Comics, was my gateway. So I started reading series like Preacher, Why the Last Man, um, DMZ, Transmet. And it really was Why the Last Man, Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra series that inspired me to try to write my own. So this was at the fall, in the fall of 2008, the stock market had crashed. I was living in an apartment that I couldn't really afford with two, two friends and I was broke, so I just stayed in for about six weeks just working on what I thought was going to be the greatest zombie comic ever. <laughs> Little did I know that that whole market is super saturated. But I just started to write as an exercise, and then it became a full-on obsession. Mm-hmm. And then I just started using my day job and going to conventions and networking, and, and that's how I kind of got my foot into the industry. I started basically as, as a press person because I was writing uh, comic book reviews for a friend's website, and that was enough to get me a press badge to go to these conventions, I had complete access to all the creators I wanted to speak to. And then eventually I just shed the press badge and I just was kind of one of their contemporaries. And yeah, so I kind of did a backdoor way into writing comics. Wow. Were you always like an avid reader um, before you got into comics? Um, no. <laughs> I, um, I didn't actually really start reading until senior year of high school. And I had this really kind of boring job uh, working at a golf course this summer before uh, the summer after I graduated high school. And I was working at this, basically this little snack shop. It was a one person snack shop. I manned it by myself and I just never had any customers. So I just started buying books and I started reading a ton of books. And that summer sort of introduced me to the idea that, wait a minute, I do like to read. It was one of these things I told myself my entire you know, adolescents that, oh, you don't like to read. Reading's boring. And it was really just because when I was forced to read as a kid, I was never really introduced to a a wide range of stories. It was very, okay, well, your school needs you to read this, so read it. Mm. Um, So when I started picking up books that personally interested me, I I realized, oh, I really do like to read. And so, yeah, I've been reading ever since. And and the comic book reading was pretty, pretty late. Um, as far as most people I know that work in comics, they usually have been reading them since they were children. What is it that um, you specifically like really like about comics? I think it's really sort of what I love about films and TV shows is that there's a very cinematic quality to it when done well. Mm. Um, I love the collaboration and yeah, I mean, there's just something about uh, the freedom to be able to tell a very complex, nuanced, may- maybe it has a lot of action, um, maybe it has, like, suspenseful moments, but, like, it only really takes a small group of people to do that, which was, to me, kind of mind-blowing, having come from film uh, from a film program, realizing you need so many people to make a movie, mm-hmm. and the process of getting even a screenplay made is a gauntlet you have to go through and this sort of you can kind of fast track it because the budgets are so much smaller to make a comic book um so you're not really limited by a budget per se you're just sort of limited by your imagination and i really do like the 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 narrative structure of comic books how everything is usually uh framed within 20 to 22 pages 
you have to be mindful of like page turns and cliffhangers. And usually those have to land on, on the odd numbered page. Working with that, that framework to me was also actually, uh, was complementary to my, my work as a technician doing these very technical jobs, you know, taking a computer apart, putting it back together. There was like a process to doing that. And very much like writing a comic, I developed a process for how to write a comic well and quickly because usually these deadlines are pretty, pretty short. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of was a natural extension of my, my mind as a technician kind of really helped me a lot in, in learning how to write a comic book. I find that like super interesting. Wondering if you could say a bit more about what the particular aspects of your job as a technician cultivate a kind of eye for doing when it comes to comic book writing. It's less so now. Uh, when I was working at Apple, it was there was a lot of things that um, there were parallels to it. Just you know, you're given a task, you know what the result needs to be, and then you have to figure out how to get from point A to Z, and you have to try to do it as efficiently and as quickly as possible. So mm. when you're say trying to troubleshoot on why you know a specific key doesn't work on a on a MacBook, you you know, as a technician are trained how to basically do a split half search and figure out what the problem is and then know what components to replace. Similarly with comic books, you have a finite amount of space to work in with, within each panel. And depending on how many panels are on the page, you have to convey as much information as possible with honestly as few words as possible. Mm. And that took me a long time to try to figure out because I didn't have a lot of working relationships with artists. So I, a lot of my early scripts were very verbose and it's not great because if you're filling up a panel with words, you leave no room for the arts, no room for the nuanced information that doesn't really need words to convey to the reader. And that took a solid five or six years of just having a, a roster of artists that I work with regularly. And we sort of have a shorthand at this point where it's like I can rely on them uh, to carry that um, the visual component of the storytelling. And I don't have to rely completely on the words. Um, my scripts do tend to be detailed for the artist, but you know, the reader will never probably read that. Um, so less so now working tech support at, at a private school where I'm just waiting for someone to forget their password or can't connect to a projector. But, um, the networking actually is really helpful. Like working behind the genius bar, talking to customers every 10 to 15 minutes, learning how to make small talk really did prime me to go to a convention and just dive headfirst into going to these editor's boots, introducing myself learning how to, to draft and basically say an elevator pitch in, you know, a two to three minute pitch. I usually try to memorize these things and um, yeah, just being personable, just being friendly. And, and um, you know, it's a small industry and people like to work with who they like as people. Mm. And that's really kind of important to keep in mind. So I was just curious, you said that at one point, when you kind of left like the film and sound design uh, sphere and you were just working as a technician that you felt this urge to like do something more creative again. I was just wondering if you have, like if you can put more words to that, because I feel like maybe that's a common urge that people have, but like maybe a lot of people kind of ignore or or figure that, Oh, well, what can I do about that? Do, Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, The struggle that I had when I went to art school was, you know, you get there and you are kind of thrust into this mindset of in four years, you need to know what you're going to do with your life. And to me, it was kind of, I I just thought it was sort of a, 
it was a fool's errand. It's like, how am I going to possibly figure out what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life in four years? And especially because I didn't go into art school knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to be an actor, honestly, because I did theater in high school. And I thought that was the, the path I was going to go down. And I realized mm -hmm. I just didn't have the courage to pursue that. So I decided to be behind the camera instead of in front of it. But even when I left school, I remember walking across that stage to get my diploma. And I thought, I'm not going to use this degree for more than a year. Like, this just isn't me. And it sort of felt like a waste. Like, what did I spend four years trying to figure out? And so when I started reading comics, and then when I started writing them, it was like this, I'll, I'll probably never win the lottery, but I feel like I know what that feels like. Because once I figured out that this is how my brain works, this is what gets me up in the morning, this is what I instinctually do all day long is tell myself stories and, and now that I had this kind of outlet on how to focus those thoughts, it was like, I, I figured it out. This is what I want to do with my life. And it's become a huge part of my own identity, really, as a writer. Um, so it was, it was by accident, but it's, at the same time, I can't help but think that it was fate because I really can't imagine doing anything else with my life creatively or professionally. Wow. I, I suppose that 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 clarity and um, that passion that you found helped you get from someone who had, you know, just recently started reading comic books to, to a comic book writer, you know, from, from A to Z, mm -hmm. that journey. But, I mean, it just strikes me as, I don't know if you're someone that has always had a certain, like, self-belief to, I don't know, just to put yourself forward in that way, like, from someone that wasn't really writing and that only recently started reading comics and then just did you, I mean, was it difficult? Like, did you feel kind of like uh, even an imposter at times or like? That's a great question. I, I definitely feel like an imposter at times, um, especially when I'm not, when I'm in these like uh, down points where I'm not creating and I'm just letting my brain simmer on ideas. Um, sometimes I have to remind myself that you don't need to be writing every day to be a writer. Um, that sometimes taking a break is part of that process. That's also taken me years to kind of understand and cultivate for myself. Um, but I think that just along the way, there was just nothing about it that scared me. Like rejection was hard. It was really hard to understand that. But in a way, I was prepared being an, being an art student and doing these you know, monthly critiques of, of a project and getting shut down or getting constructive criticism. And honestly, that was the best thing I learned in art school was learning how to take critique. Mm. Um, because I've seen so many people before me trying to get where I'm trying to go and they can't take a critique productively and they get defensive or, you know, they just think that what they're, what they're presenting is the best thing ever. And it's like, well, that's impossible. Like I'm, everything I write is better than the last thing I wrote the day that that changes is the day I'm going to rethink doing all of this because it's a lot of work and it's, you know, it's physically taxing. It's, it's mentally taxing just sitting in a chair for, you know, long stretches of time by yourself. But I, I think along the way, I just n was never completely deterred from it. Um, and a book that I read in high school, well, no, a book that I read in college is the alchemist. And, and that book really, shaped my idea of how to pursue a creative life, even though the book isn't really about a person 
following a cre- creative life. It's really a person having this profound belief. If for people who haven't read this book, it's about a young sheep farmer who believes that there is gold hidden in, in the pyramids of Egypt. And he doesn't know why he believes this, but he just does. So he decides to dedicate his life to go to the pyramids to find this gold. And along the way, he is very attuned to looking for omens, good omens that are basically signposts that kind of give him this like nudge, like keep going, you're going in the right direction. And I've hit a, I've come across a lot of good omens throughout the 13 years of me writing comics. And um, sometimes when I'm feeling kind of lost or disoriented, something like a good omen will pop in my path and I go, oh, right, I, I just need to keep doing this. So you did just mention that um, part of the writing process also involves taking a break, but we also kind of had a question about um, writing routine, if you have one, um, and or how you kind of juggle your your day job with, with your writing. Oh, I wish I had a good answer for this. I don't really have a routine. Um, at this point, uh, my routine is completely dependent on deadlines. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately for me now at this point in my writing career, uh, they're no longer self-imposed deadlines. There are deadlines, um, provided by editorial, um, which really helps me because I mean, I, I think that I did have a sort of routine several years ago. And these are, this was a time when I was like, I was married. I had a house. I was living in this small town in Vermont. There was not a lot to do, so it was very easy to build a routine out of just going to my nine to five, coming home, writing for two hours in the evening, spending time with my my wife, and then just doing that rinse and repeat, and then spend all day on the weekends writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I eventually got divorced, moved out, lived alone, and living alone was a huge disruption to that routine because I just had never lived alone in my entire life. So in twenty. See, in 2020, it was the first time in my entire life that I lived by myself, and that was very disorienting and disruptive. Um, so since then, my routine has been sort of upside down, and along with the pandemic, it's just my sense of time has gone out the window, just like everybody else. And uh, for me now, it's really just waiting for an editor or publisher to be like, okay, we need this by this date. It's like, okay. And then I just get to work. I do need to get better at regulating that because... Um, this past summer I was, I was working on a work for hire project. Uh, a company reached out to me to, to write a, a 48 page comic book, um, using very five, very real Asian Americans in New York city and turning them into superheroes. And I had to develop all this IP by myself and come up with an Asian superhero narrative from scratch. And so I just turned that thing out in about four weeks um, and then I was just completely burnt out and I actually didn't write anything up until maybe about a month ago that I started dusting off the writer brain and, and started getting to work. Um, so my routine is definitely extreme highs and lows, which I need to figure out, but just giving myself some time. I, I saw a post, I, I should have saved it, something about um, how it can be really normal for creative people to have a sense of to feel a little bit low i guess after something gets published or something mm-hmm. makes it out into the world and this person was just kind of normalizing that that's 
you know, like you put so much energy and work into something and it doesn't mean it's not great and it doesn't mean you don't love all the accolades and whatever, but that it's, you can have a bit of a dip. And I thought that was maybe part of the process that we don't hear very much about. And I'm wondering if, if, if you experience that, I mean, it sounds like what you were describing was, was burnout. And so, you know, that may not be how you feel after the end of every project, but yeah, does that kind of speak speak to your experience at all? Or? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, especially with Made in Korea, um, I've been trying to get published by Image Comics since I started reading comic books back, back in 2008. And I had so many false starts. I've pitched to them for, for over a decade. And at one point, um, I was like, that dream is dead. Like, I remember telling myself in like 20, 2016, I was like, that dream is dead. I need to just move on with my life. And when it finally happened, it was exhilarating. Um, the whole project got delayed for a couple of reasons. Um, it was supposed to come out in 2019 and then it got pushed to 2020. And then because of COVID, it got pushed to 2021. Um, but when it finally did come out and the fact that I've just seen the collected edition, which is what I've been working towards this whole time, it doesn't feel the way I imagine it to feel. And at first it feels almost like disappointment because it's like, and I, I think part of it is just, we're not doing the normal things we would be doing, like going to conventions, doing, I mean, I'm doing a small book tour at the end of the month, but that was, um, even that feels a little stressful with how things are with COVID. But yeah, I, I just think that a part of me feels so removed from it because I, I wrote this thing and finished it in 2019. I, I, I wrote the last script issue six christmas eve of 2019 and i haven't really looked at it since so to see it i remember flipping through it like a like a couple days ago and i don't remember writing some of it like it's like wow that's a pretty good scene oh that's a good line i can't believe, you know pat myself on the back i can't believe i wrote that um and i i think that's sort of normal because as a writer you have to keep moving forward like like any athlete you can't be stagnant you know, any, any person operating at, at the highest level of their profession, they can't just, you know, rest on their laurels. They have to keep moving forward. Sort of like, you know, if you don't, you sort of die, essentially. Like your creativity just withers away. You just got to keep moving forward, got to keep doing better. And that stuff is going to feel like it's in the rear view. And that's, I, I think that is part of the process. Um, so, yeah, it, it was very sobering to be like, wow, this feels like my thing, but it's not anymore because it's so, I'm, I'm already working on three other things right now. And, um, but it's, it is nice to get that feedback from, from the readership when people write me or, you know, just being on podcasts like this, just knowing that people are interested in what I'm doing. Firstly, um, congratulations, because I, I just think that's a really cool story about how like you were pitching to image comics for a decade and that in 2016, you, you told yourself, oh, that dream is dead. And then at some point, did you kind of like find, I don't know, the, the courage or the belief to pitch again? Yes. Um, I mean, when I, in 2016, I said, I said that that was dead. I said my whole writing career was dead. Um, I, I had a, a literary agent uh, that was just really not serving me very well. And I had written a novel in 2016 that I, I sent him for review and, and it wasn't even a, a critique. It was just this very harsh phone call of someone who uh, I could tell just didn't really believe in anything I was doing. 
And it was such a gut-wrenching phone call that I was like, I was like, this is just not worth it. It's not worth putting my time, my energy, my soul into this work for someone to tear it apart just because they're bored. And so I was like, I'm done with writing. So I just read books. I, I actually tried to read 50 novels in one year. I only got to about 35. But what I realized in that year, and so this is going into 2017, is it was coincided with the same year that I came out as non-binary and something about understanding my gender identity was so liberating in more ways than I initially was prepared for because I was looking at all the stories I was writing up until 2017 and I'd been writing all these white male savior stories and as a Korean adoptee who was raised by white people I heavily viewed myself as a as a white American I was sort of in a lot of ways raised to believe that and I've spoken to a handful of other Korean adoptee friends who were raised similarly. And once I examined all of that and said, this isn't my story, who am I? Like, what am I writing? What is, what is my message here? And then when I literally infuse color, literally and figuratively into my stories, I realized that I need to move my goalpost. And that's something I tell people in the creative fields. It's important to have goals. It's important to know where you want to go. But what's even more important than that is to move that goalpost because I was focused on getting published by image. I was focused on becoming a full-time writer. And when those things weren't happening, I was quitting constantly. So I shifted the goalpost from not achieving those things, but just continuing to tell a story. If I can just keep telling stories, that's the goal. So shifting that goalpost, I, I fell in love with writing again because I was doing it for me and I wasn't trying to do it for these, these publishers or these people. And I started infusing my own personal trauma, my own feelings, my own thoughts into my stories that I just wanted to write more authentically. And that's really when all the publishing success started to happen more frequently. And that's when Image was like, oh yeah, we can't deny this. This is good. <laughs> and they just happened to go with the most personal story I had written at the time. Yeah. I'm, I, I kind of like, um, I have to collect my thoughts. I think... I just love this about podcasting that we get to meet people like you. I think that is an amazing story and journey. And I, I have a similar experience just really quickly about like kind of shifting the goalposts because I feel like in a way it's both, it's kind of both broadening the goalposts and clarifying like the, the kind of more pure intention of, of why, why you're doing something. Like I was very set on trying to become an opera singer and I think in the process of that, I forgot that um, it's just singing and communicating through voice that that I'm passionate about and that comes naturally to me. And so but because I was so fixed on that kind of more narrow definition of, of being a singer, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I lost my way. And only by kind of, yeah, shifting the goalposts, I, I found myself again, you know. Anyway, so I just really... Um, identified with what you shared um, yeah because we, we can get disconnected from ourselves when we're focusing on things that are outside our control and yeah. really the only things we can control are, are how we feel and what we do with those feelings and, and i think um, there's so much power yeah. in like um yeah connecting with yourself like authentically um Well, I guess that's a really good seg into part two. So, yeah, let's talk about your latest um, book, Made in Korea. So, 
Oh, I guess this is actually quite a big question. Um, when and how did the idea for an AI adoptee literally made in Korea uh, first come to mind? If I'm being completely honest with myself, I think the idea, the, the germination of the idea stemmed from a really dumb thought I had in college, which was I wanted a tattoo that said made in Korea and I wanted a tattooed on the bottom of my foot. And my friends thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. It was also very dumb and not practical. And I just kind of forgot about it. And then I eventually uh, got a Made in Korea tattoo, which is on my inner right forearm, which is a UPC code. So it says Uncle Sun. And it also, the, the barcode is my birth year. So I eventually got this tattoo. And I, I've just kind of always been thinking about myself being made in Korea. And the idea for the story started in 2016, like the rough ideas and like, and then I started developing it. Um, and by 2017, I was looking for an artist. And for me, I sort of wanted to try to dip my toe into the science fiction realm because I'd never written anything like hard sci-fi. I'd written a graphic novel in uh, that was published in 2017 called Skip to the End, which is more magical realism, but it uses time travel as a narrative element. Um, the concept being music as a form of time travel. So from there, I, I wanted to tell a real science fiction story. And the stories that I love dealing with artificial intelligence, like Chappie and Ex Machina and obviously Spielberg's AI, I've always felt that those good stories all stem from an adoption experience. I think a good AI story stems from an adoption experience. I just haven't seen anyone do it directly. And I wanted to, at the time, explore my own feelings about being Asian American, um, the, you know, experiencing the Asian American diaspora and the complications of being an, a multiple. Um, and I just thought that this was a perfect vehicle to, to tell that story. And uh, it took a, you know, it took a long time to put it all together with my co-creator, George, but uh, I'm just kind of uh, happy no one did it before me. <laughs> Um, on that note, can you tell us um, about your collaborative process with, with George, the, the artist, um, and what it was like working closely with, with a non-Korean adoptee? Yeah, so George, um, I was introduced to them in, through a friend, uh, my, our mutual friend Felipe, who I'm actually working on another graphic novel with right now. Felipe told me George was looking for a project, and they had some uh, publishing stuff under their under their belt, so I checked out their website, and they they had this really great short story set in Japan, and I love that they were very design heavy. Uh, George has a background as a graphic designer. I could just tell that they really appreciate and honor the Asian aesthetic. So uh, we just got to talking, and they loved the idea. And as soon as I think they sent me some character sketches. And some rough layouts for the first few pages. I was like, oh, this is going to be pretty great. Little did I know that George was going to eventually take on a project that would delay ours by a year. But in that year, they developed their style, uh, specifically this very textured style that works so well with Made in Korea and that so many reviewers comment on with this sort of like thumbprint texture that they add to every panel sort of as, as shading, as a, as a replacement for just normal cross-hatching shading or just blacks. And that style is just lovely, and it's 
really their signature because I recognize it now and I think people will recognize George's work moving forward. And it took that year for them to develop it. And I'm glad that they went off and worked on another book to, to cultivate that because it's it's not what we pitched to Image. The, the style we pitched was, was noticeably different. It was worth the wait. So, and, and with my collaborators, uh, I always say that I want feedback. Like I, as long as the pacing that I've written is intact, you can move things however you want. Like uh, if you want to add panels, remove panels, if you have some conflict with a line of dialogue I've written, let me know. George has been the most vocal collaborator I've worked with. But because of that, we've just produced a, a truly symbiotic relationship and the work is 100% 50-50. And I think that that shows. So yeah, another question we have, um, we've touched briefly on this in, in our podcast, but there are some really interesting convergences least I think between adoptee and trans experiences and I think you just said that you'd kind of finished the script in 2016 which is prior to, <laughs> to the big year of 2017 so just kind of really interested in um, Jesse's gender identity and perhaps how that arc became concrete in your mind and did it actually happen before 2017 sure yeah. um, I was developing the material in 2016 I, I I, I spent, let's see, 2017, 18, 19. So I spent two years writing the script. So I finished the sixth issue in, in, in the winter of 2019. So the, the whole gender identity component was a late addition to the story. The initial idea and the initial premise really ended with the school shooting. And mm -hmm. that is what I sent out to, to publishers. And, and it, did not get a lot of good feedback. I mean, I think publishers and, and anybody, you know, for good reason wants to shy away from this material because it's, you know, it's a sensitive topic, but I decided to keep it in because I worked at a school that almost had a school shooting. I do active shooter training every year for my job. It's just one of these things that you'll never forget when you're sitting in a classroom with teachers who are all break, breaking down in tears, discussing, what should have happened the day before, but didn't because the kids took it seriously. The school took it seriously. The government took it seriously. And the two boys who were going to come in on a Monday and kill everybody were apprehended two days earlier. And so I needed to write about my feelings around that. And so I did spend a good deal of time understanding, researching uh, the Columbine massacre. And so that was really the, the bulk of the story. And then I realized that I was forgetting a huge component to this narrative, which is the, the adoption component and the idea of a birthright trip and to go back to your roots, which I have yet to do with my brothers. And so I thought, oh, this is another great experience to kind of weave that idea into the story and write my own feelings around it. And, and specifically through the bioengineer, uh, Kim Dong-chul, who is sort of misguided in his thinking of what it means to be a parent. And I wanted to explore that aspect as well. And so the gender component to Jesse's character development really happened organically as I was writing it, because I was thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be human? And, and I think that gender is such a specific human trait. And I just, again, have not seen it done in, in science fiction or AI storylines. And I thought that it, it just was this kind of beautiful, hopeful commentary because most people think of AI, they think of like hostile 
takeover by robots. It's like, I don't really want to talk about that because that's not interesting to me. And I thought that this, in a lot of ways, grounds an otherwise otherworldly character even more so. When that turn happens, I was like, oh yeah, Jesse's a very gender neutral name, but it didn't kind of occur in the first few. It was really clever. Yeah. Yeah, I was dropping hints and I was listening to reviewers through, through the seven, eight months of the run of the book. I should say the series. I was hoping someone would pick up on it and nobody did. Um, I, I, was, I thought it would be too on the nose where she cuts her hair. No one, no one thought about that. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Because like, you know, to change your identity to fit really the struggle I was going through and in 2017 was like, I have this, I, this idea of me as a concept in my mind's eye and it's just not syncing up with what I see in the mirror. And that's what I've just gradually gently changed over time with my, how I present to the world that feels more authentic. And I really wanted to have Jesse go through that. And I I was um, surprised nobody really picked up on it until the end. I'm also curious, Jeremy, did you say earlier that like from 2017, you literally and figuratively added color in your, to your life and your work? Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? Which I think is a, a, just a beautiful idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I think it started sort of, <coughs> excuse me, with my wardrobe, uh, something very simply just changing, having more, less blacks and grays and actual more, more color, more um, character. Um, and then with my stories, I just wanted to try to tell a story without having to feature a, a white character in any way. And I realized it's quite easy to do. And when you do it, there are so many different narrative threads that emerge that don't happen with a white storyline. Uh, you know, when you're writing a white character, you're not, you don't think about certain things. When you write, you know, a person of color, you think about different things. And those things were way more interesting to explore both from a character standpoint and just from an, a narrative. And so I also think that representation is really important. And I want to produce content and material where readers can l- read these books and they don't have to do that, m- those mental gymnastics that we have, as Asian people had to do as children seeing our heroes, so to speak, on TV or in the movies. Even though they didn't look like us, we had to somehow justify it in our mind like, oh, we have the same personality. Or like, oh, we wear the same glasses, you know, just really superficial stuff. And I want to create characters where someone can see themselves in the book and they don't have to do that um, that leap. I feel like you've kind of just answered um, another question that we had. Um, we were wondering yeah, if you were specifically hoping to reach an adoptee audience with this book and, um, and if so, yeah, if there was something that you wanted the work to say or, or do for that audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely kept the adoptee community in mind. Um, I never really write stories for people. I write them for myself. Mm. But on that same note, I, I know that the, the conversation around adoption in the last few years through pop culture is always a very serious one. And it's very direct. And it's, you know, uh, my one of my brothers had it, had a podcast for a short while uh, with a co-host who, who was uh, white, a white adoptee and they were just talking about the very technical aspects of being adopted and and it's interesting and it's sort of like a history lesson but it wasn't really 
interesting enough to me per se. And I, the stuff I've come across is, w- about adoption is, is very, a lot of it comes across as one note. And I feel like it would be really interesting to talk about adoption through the lens of something else to kind of grease those wheels, make it more um, interesting to everybody, not just adoptees. And that's also important to get the people that aren't adoptees who don't understand this stuff, who don't think about it on a day-to-day basis, are now thinking about it through this lens of science fiction in the case of Maine Korea. That was my goal, was to just try to make it more palatable for people who don't necessarily think about or necessarily care about these issues, uh, but also to provide representation for the people that, that it does matter. So I think... We've come to our random question. I think so. I think so. (laughs) It's random, but um, it's not necessarily going to be like short and snappy. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. Random question number one. It's kind of like a big unruly one. We see from your bio um, that you've moved around a lot, as as we both have too. Um, And so we're wondering like what prompted – your various moves and and now how you feel about your your current city of New York. Yeah. Quite simply my dad's job. Uh, he's a retired engineer, worked for ExxonMobil his entire career. So the communities I grew up in were mostly international communities, it's either oil or military or diplomats. Uh, so that's what had us move a lot. I'm so glad to be back in Brooklyn. I mean, I've been in New York on and off for six years, but I was gone for about seven living in Vermont, which was quaint and nice, and I liked it, but I also felt like my life was passing me by. I I realized I was never really ready to leave New York when I did. So it feels good to be back, and I'm excited to leave when I'm ready, uh, which honestly is not anytime soon. Uh, There's something about the energy of of, uh, Brooklyn that I love and, and that I've missed, and even during a pandemic, it's still, there's so much to love about it. So, yeah, and moving a lot really did sort of train me to be as adaptable as possible. Uh, so moving isn't super scary for me. I, I have sort of these routines on how to ground myself. And the irony is that I'm really good at nesting within a neighborhood. Like I go out and meet people at local businesses and I, I like walking in and people know who I am and I know who they are. And I've actually spent more time nesting inside my actual apartment like hanging up art and decorating things and because as someone who moved around a lot I think in the back of my head I'm just thinking I'm going to move again why do I need to unpack any of this stuff so um it's been good to try to find that balance as well quick follow-up question I'm just curious like you said that you lived by yourself for the first time from 2020 like coinciding with the pandemic do you like living alone what have you learned about I don't know living alone well um I didn't like it at first. Uh, I was quarantined with it with an ex-partner during the quarantine of 2020, which was awful because I ended that relationship and we still lived together for about three months. I do not wish mm. that experience on my worst enemy. So being alone was not something I ever really thought to do, but in the circumstance, it's something I needed to do in that moment. And so the first few months was hard because I'm so used to, less so now, but I'm so, I, w- I was so used to having people around all the time whether it be a a partner or a roommate, I found myself constantly trying to distract myself with the feeling of of loneliness, distract myself from the feeling of loneliness. And eventually I just had to quiet that down and and just sit with the realization that I've chosen to be alone 
and I feel loneliness. Both are very different and neither are bad. And so to just sit with my thoughts and it was really a learning experience. And I tell everybody, go to therapy, find a good therapist. You might not find the right one right away, but find a therapist because I spent two years in pretty intense therapy, which was extremely informative in a lot of ways that just hasn't just improved my life personally and my romantic relationships, but also my creativity as well. Um, ask myself questions I've never asked before that have unlocked thoughts and, and ideas um, regarding my own creative output and creative work. So it's better now. I do like it now, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm also going to sneak in a, a, a <laughs> question <laughs> one part C, um, <laughs> which is um, on the basis of all, you know, talking about all those moves, um, would you ever consider moving to Korea either short term or for a longer period of time? Oh man. Yes, I think so. Um, I've been trying to learn Korean through Duolingo, which has not been very effective. Um, <laughs> <I've been there>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would at the very least love to go back for reasons connected to my, my creative work. So um, there are developments regarding made in Korea that, might give me a very good reason to go back sooner than maybe I was expecting to. Um, I can share more about that off air, but um, yeah, I think I would love to at the very least visit and I have enough friends there that could show me around. So I wouldn't feel completely lost. Um, I would really like to try to do it with my brothers. Mm -hmm. And I I was telling them over the holiday that I'd like to go back with them and try to recreate our childhood in an aspect of like, I said, I really think we should all share a hotel room. Like we should go and just share a hotel room and just deal with being in the same space for a week and like going out and venturing and doing whatever we need to do. And, um, but to just kind of do it as like, you know, the three of us. And I think that, that, that connection just physically being in the same room is, is important because that's how we spent half our life. Okay. Well, that leads to our next, um, random question. Um, so yeah, so you're an identical triplet. Are you the middle or the youngest triplet? Youngest. Youngest. Ah, okay. So okay. So when you when you're a triplet and you're, like, you're all born really, on the same. Really, Hannah's been waiting the whole hour for this question. I can just feel it in her voice. <laughs> okay. So like, yeah, when you're a triplet, you're all born on the same day. But like, do you still feel that there's like kind of that birth order? Like, do you feel like the youngest child or? No, I, I think it's just something that's just, you know, it propagates down from just being told that, you know, I, I think if we were told something else, we'd believe that too. Um, what's interesting is if you look at photos of, of the three of us, Chris and Justin look very similar, meaning they like to sort of dress the same, look the same. They sort of have matching tattoos. They have wear the same sunglasses. They sport similar facial hair. Um, and we found out maybe, uh, I think a decade at this point now, a decade ago that, uh, for the first year of my life, I was separated from them. Uh, so I didn't meet them until I was a year old. Um, there's no real explanation of why this happened. Uh, my brother, Chris, several years ago when the documentary Twinsters came out, uh, which is about these two Korean adoptee identical girls who were separated at birth. And then the documentaries about them being reunited. My brother was obsessed with this movie. So then he went and started digging into our adoption and, 
got, gained a lot of information, including the fact that not only was the information we were told our entire life, which is, you know, our, our bio mom had us out of wedlock, was maybe in our early 20s, late teens. Uh, that's all we knew. Well, apparently that's completely false. Like she was in her 30s. She was married. We apparently have a biological brother, older brother that we've never met. And my brother started digging into that. And those just led to just dead ends. Mm. Have the three of you um, remained like fairly close throughout your adulthood? And do you have like, I don't know, regular FaceTime calls or something? <laughs> no, I'd, I'd say that they are closer to each other. They've always been. Um, I've just never, I've had to make a concerted effort to, to do that. Um, it just never came naturally to me. I've always, if I reflect honestly on my life, I've always just felt alone. Not like I was abandoned, but like just, I just always felt comfortable doing things alone, just going off and doing something by myself, not really needing them around. And in fact, I really hated having them around because it would create so much unwanted attention, but they were very comfortable just being together all the time. So I've definitely spent the last several years making a concerted effort to, to reconnect with them. Um, so I'd say I'm close to, I'm closer with them than I've ever been, but, um, it's a relatively new development. Right. So we see from your website that you're an avid reader. Um, and it sounds like you have X number of books per year that you, you try and hit. Can you name, you know, one or two of your favorite books that you read in 2021 or if in the two weeks we've had of 2022, <laughs> if you've read something you've loved, um, my reading has totally taken a nosedive. Uh, I think a lot of people have experienced that. Uh, the book that I'm basically just sort of almost prophetizing to people is Michelle Zahner's memoir, Crying in H Mart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a huge fan of her band Japanese Breakfast for a very long time. Uh, so to get to know her on a, a much more direct and intimate way through her memoir, is just such a fantastic read. It really does open my eyes up to you know, the power of food and family specifically through, you know, through her eyes, she's talking about the Korean culture and the Korean cuisine. And that was just such a, a moving story for me. And I'm so glad that it's done so well. I'm we're super excited that she's been uh, tapped to write the screenplay adaptation for the book and her band is doing all the music for the film. Yeah. That's the one book I recommend to everybody right now. I'm reading um, Ishiguro's uh, Clara and the Sun which was recommended to me because a, a, a fan of Made in Korea said, hey, this reminded me of, of your comic book. And it's about an artificial friend and it deals with artificial intelligence. Uh, so I've been enjoying that. Um, and those are the ones that I've been reading. Actually, a book that I've been, I specifically put down because I do not want to finish it because it's so good, <laughs> is um, The Shadow of the Wind by, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the author's name. He passed unexpectedly, I think, a couple of years ago, and it, the book was supposed to be a trilogy, but it's such a, an engaging and beautifully written book. Um, so I definitely recommend that to someone who wants to, to read a real page turner. Cool. Okay, so maybe as yeah, a final question, um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? And, and also perhaps um, what your kind of – creative goals are 
for the future if you have anything specific yeah um right now i'm developing a pitch that is a sort of my i don't know young adult reimagining of the frankenstein narrative uh with a completely diverse cast and the the concept is you know what if dr frankenstein went to art school so uh it's sort of re reinventing the wheel of of death and reanimation has been super fun i've signed a contract for a new graphic novel uh that i can't really talk about but it's also going to be a young adult reimagining of a of a classic uh, piece of literature that i'm super excited about uh production's already started so i've seen the first i'd say like four or five pages of art which is looking fantastic and i might have my first prose novel published later this year Super and that's cool. something I wrote back in 2017. So um, I need to do several rounds of edits for that before it comes out. And this isn't so much active work, but um, I did a romantic comedy graphic novel through Comixology Originals in 2019 that came out summer of 2019. And that's going to be getting collected and printed through Dark Horse Comics in the fall. So it was digital only for its release, but it's going to get printed, which I'm super excited about. Uh, and that story is basically... Uh, my homage to the New York City rom-com. I love rom-coms. And it's surrounding <laughs> uh, these two characters who are using a dating app that I invented. A dating app that you invented? Yeah, so the app basically serves as all the proof of being in a relationship without having to be in one. So the female protagonist is getting all this flack from her, her family about settling down and getting married when she really wants to focus on her journalism career. And the male protagonist is getting out of this very messy, nasty divorce, which actually is pulled directly from my own life experience of going through a very nasty, uh, relationship. I, my marriage, I was married to a very emotionally and physically abusive person. And it took me years to realize this and it took me a while to get out of it. And that book was the first time that I wove a piece of my own life experience into a story, which was very cathartic. Um, and I wanted to show that, you know, lots of people get abused in different ways and, you know, at the time I identified as male and, and being the being, being male and being abused was such a, a disorienting thing for me because it was not really a lot of places to turn to and I didn't know how to talk about it with anyone. So that story focuses on that. And so the male protagonist actually decides to work at this app company to try to find new meaning in his life after kind of picking up the pieces of his life from this divorce. But uh, it's ultimately about friendship and, and my personal love for the city. And I got to actually resurrect a couple of locations that don't exist anymore. Like uh, Bergen Street Comics was my comic book shop in Prospect Heights that I used to go to all the time. It's where I met a lot of big name writers and artists because Tom and Amy, the owners, would host these really great signing events and they created a real sense of community. So I resurrected that shop and um, a couple bars that I like to go to that don't exist anymore. So it's kind of getting to live vicariously through these characters in a version of Brooklyn that I miss that doesn't exist anymore. Okay, I have to ask final, final round of question because I also like romantic comedies, like favorite romantic comedy or like... Yeah. I mean, I love Nancy Myers, uh, all of her movies. Uh, I'd say the, the most influential one for me right now is Jennifer Caden Robinson's Someone Great, which is a Netflix original film. Oh yeah, with... um about that breakup <clears throat> yeah. Gina Rodriguez and yeah so it's I loved it because it's not about two people falling in love but it's about two people surviving falling out of love and 
she captures New York in a very authentic way. And I love her use of music in this film because most rom-coms, you know, the premise is these two people meet under false pretense, that pretense, that lie gets exposed. And then the guy chases the girl and it's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But in this story, that doesn't happen. It's like the tail end of that. And it's ex exploring everything outside of that romantic uh, honeymoon phase of a relationship that sort of gets condensed into a rom-com format. And the reality is we live outside of that bubble for most of our, our existence, most of our time. Um, and so with someone great, not only is it exploring that, it's exploring the power of friendship and her use of music. It's not just, you know, chalking full a soundtrack of really cool popular songs, but the songs are incorporated into the story because when the character hears a song, it transports her to a moment in her, in her relationship, which happens for all of us. And it was just the most effective, poignant use of, of uh, you know, music soundtrack that I'd seen in a long time. So mm. that, that one I definitely recommend. Um, I mean, that would probably be my top three, I think. But I mean, I love like, you know, Notting Hill is great and, and The Holiday is great. And, oh, I didn't um, like The Holiday, but... Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, someone great. It's interesting. I guess technically it is a rom-com. It's quite a bittersweet one. Yes. Um, but I think it captures the feelings of a breakup really effectively. Like that oh, That real that contrast between um, the heartbreak that you're going through and then these like painful flashbacks of like your most, most beautiful, most ecstatic moments, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's important um, to, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how people tackle the, the tropes in these films, like, you know, the, the gay best friend. I, I'm always interested, interested to see what the screenwriters does with that character, because oftentimes, like when you think of like my best friend's wedding, the, the gay character in that story <clears throat> is the comic relief. Uh, but he has no life. We don't know what he does. And that's usually how that character is portrayed. They're the com comedic relief with no real life, no dimension to them. So for me, I wanted to write the, the gay best friend in, in Virtually Yours, which is the, the graphic novel I wrote, to have a personality and have a, a life. And I wanted all the characters in the story to be fully fleshed out. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or we're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Mm -hmm.